Go ahead and open your Bibles this morning to Deuteronomy chapter 2. Deuteronomy chapter 2, and we will be exploring Deuteronomy chapter 2, verses 24 to 37. Deuteronomy chapter 2, verses 24 to 37. And if you are able, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient word this morning, starting in Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 24. Rise up, set out on your journey, and go over the valley of the Arnon. Behold, I have given into your hands Sihon the Amorite, king of Heshbon, and his land, Begin to take possession and contend with him in battle. This day I will begin to put the fear, the dread and fear of you on the peoples who are under the whole heaven, who shall hear the report of you and shall tremble and be in anguish because of you. So I sent messengers from the wilderness of Kedemoth to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, with words of peace, saying, Let me pass through your land. I will go only by the road. I will turn aside neither to the right nor to the left. You shall sell me food for money that I may eat and give me water for money that I may drink. Only let me pass through on foot. As the sons of Esau who live in Seir and the Moabites who live in Ar did for me until I go over the Jordan into the land that the Lord our God is giving to us. But... Sihon, the king of Heshbon, would not let us pass by him, for the Lord your God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate that he might give him into your hand, as he is this day. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have begun to give Sihon and his land over to you. Begin to take possession that you may occupy his land. Then Sihon came out against us, he and all his people, to battle at Jahaz. And the Lord our God gave him over to us, and we defeated him and his sons and all his people. And we captured all his cities at that time and devoted to destruction every city, men, women, and children. We left no survivors. Only the livestock we took as spoil for ourselves with the plunder of the cities that we captured. From Arawer, which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnon, and from the city that is in the valley as far as Gilead, there was not a city too high for us. The Lord our God gave all into our hands. Only to the land of the sons of Ammon did you did not draw near, that is, to all the banks of the river Jabbok and the cities of the hill country, whatever the Lord our God had forbidden to us. This is the word of the Lord this morning. Thanks be to God you may be seated. Now, obviously, as we've read, we were reading through that text, you probably noticed that there is some, uh, some difficult subject matter in that chapter. But if you've been coming to Winona Gospel Church for any length of time, one of the things you will know about your preachers is that we believe firmly and convictionally that Scripture truly does reveal and present the living God to us as absolutely sovereign in everything, in everything that happens on the earth and in the people and in all of creation. I hope you've actually, over the last few years or however long you've been here, actually, I hope you have picked up on how committed we are to this truth. 
The Lord is the centerpiece of existence. As Romans tells us, all things are from him, through him, and to him. And the display and the exercise of his glorious attributes, his excellence, his perfection, that is the reason for creation. The great reformer John Calvin called creation the theater in which God displays and exercises his glorious perfection, his wonderful character. And God has made, has created in such a way that we find our joy in acknowledging the works of God in creation and ascribing to him praise and honor and glory for the way that he works in his creation. Whether it's the dispensing of mercy and grace upon the saints as we see you here today, those of you who have turned to Jesus Christ by grace through faith, the Lord is praised. His name is to be lifted high for the fact that you are one of his precious and beloved children upon whom his grace has been showered. But also, as you read scripture, it is also true that if the Lord hardens hearts in order to judge, or the Lord hardens hearts in order to bring out an army to give that army into the hands of the Israelites so that they might take possession of the land, that is also an avenue of God's glory. All of God's works in creation are designed by God to elicit from his people praise to his name. Praise in saving our souls as he chose us before the foundation of the world in Christ to the praise of his glorious grace, which Paul references three times in Ephesians chapter 1. Read Ephesians chapter 1 if you have time this week. Three times the Lord did this to the praise of his glorious grace. And in like manner, as you read scripture, especially when you go to the Old Testament and then when you go to the, the Revelation, you will see that in like manner, the perfect judgment of God, the perfect wrath of God dispensed upon rebellious sinners who refuse to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved is and will always be the source of the saints' praise to the Lord for his glorious justice and holiness, as difficult as that might be for us to grasp here and now. And so as we come to Deuteronomy chapter 2, this is, this presents to us one of the more difficult texts for believers and one of the more uh, ammunition-type texts that are used by God-haters and atheists. The fool, as the Bible says who, says, who declares in their heart that there is no God. Or the people who come to God because they want to get all of the good things that somebody told them they would get from God without liking all of the, or the totality of God's uh, revelation in Scripture. When they come to texts like this, it's a little more difficult because for many, we don't appreciate these harder aspects of God's character. And so texts like these provide ammunition to the fool in their, his or her efforts to discourage people from turning to or living for or loving the living God for who he truly is. There aren't many, aside from this text and maybe going on into Joshua when the Israelites actually conquer Canaan, that cause professing believers more embarrassment or more difficulty than, the, than what we see God recorded as doing in these verses. So if you are a God-hater, if you are an atheist, 
If you are one who is immersed in this particular cultural season, in this cultural backdrop, in this cultural environment, and you are bent in continuing your hatred of God or your love for the world and its values, and you are committed to calling others to be like you in your disposition, the commands and acts of God in Deuteronomy 2 are the sort of texts that will cause you much difficulty and perhaps embarrassment. For the fool who refuses to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ in repentance and faith, for those who detest and despise the truth of the living God, that he is indeed, as Paul writes in Romans, eternal in nature and divine in power, that he is indeed, as Daniel the prophet wrote, sovereign over his creation, the one who raises up kings and disposes of kings, kingdoms, peoples, lands, and the rest, who is perfectly sovereign, as Paul says in the the letter to the Romans, as sovereign over his creation as a potter is over the clay that is sitting on his wheel being shaped according to his will. For such, the wonderful acts of a perfectly good and perfectly wise and perfectly holy God. The acts and commands like those that are recorded for us in chapter 2 of Deuteronomy, these acts, rather than causing us to fall on our knees, to bow to him in faith and repentance, which ought to be the response, as we see the penalty of sin displayed clearly on the canvas of creation, as God shows his perfect holiness to us and gives it to us as a warning so our eyes might behold, so that we might come to grips with the seriousness and the ultimate end of those who refuse Christ and die in their sin, the wrath of the Lord. Words like Deuteronomy, rather than being that sort of warning, become opportunities and avenues by which people try to slander the character and the attributes of God. The very deeds, the very acts that God intends for His glory so that the nations all over the world would know that He is the Lord and there is no other, instead are being used by sinful, wicked rebels to defame and profane His glorious names and works. Glorious name and works. Instead of the nations seeing and knowing that he is God, they rage against him. I have over the years, and perhaps you have too, watched a number of debates that come on the, on the, on the YouTube <laughs> between atheists and Christians, Right? Uh, Christian apologists. The Christian apologists are those who take it upon themselves to intellectually defend the reasonableness of the Christian faith against atheists who hate God. And more often than not, as I watch these debates, I'm always struck by this reality, that the atheists who argue their case never truly argue, here is why there is no God, because they can't do that, because it's false. There's no way to prove such a statement. And you and I all know that God is real, He's living, He's alive, He saves. But instead, if you listen to these debates, here's what you'll notice. They're constantly uh, telling us why they don't like God. 
why they don't like the God who is revealed to us in Scripture. And they'll point to texts like Deuteronomy 2 and say, see, this is why God is, as they would call him, a moral monster. Look what he commanded the Israelites to do in Canaan. Look what God is said to have done in the heart of Sihon, the king of uh, Heshbon, when he commanded Israel to destroy him and occupy his lands. This is why we don't worship God. This is why I don't like God. And it's not only atheists, but it's also many Christians. For many Christians, these texts are a source of embarrassment for us. They raise a number of questions about the character of a God who did and who could order such things. Not only did he order them, but he commissioned them, he decreed them, he commanded the Israelites to do these things in that day. But let me just say up front, for all who love the living God, for all who know him by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, for all who are known by God as his precious sons and daughters, recipients of his glorious grace, clothed in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ, we know that Yahweh, the God of Israel, was not and is not embarrassed by his deeds and his commands to Israel as they went up to take possession of the land in these days. And that ought to raise some alarms in us who feel embarrassment, right? I want you this week, if you have time again, I'm going to get you to do a lot of Bible reading this week. If you go, I want you to read Deuteronomy and Joshua this week. And as you're reading it, ask yourself, is God ever embarrassed by the, the things he commands Israel to do? Is he ever ashamed of his wrath dispensed upon wicked sinners? Or is he quite clear and decisive about pouring out his judgment on those whose sins have reached their full measure? The Lord is not ashamed of his commands, nor was he sheepish or awkward as he exercised his holy justice and wrath against the sinful kings of the Amorites. The Lord is not apologetic, nor is he uncomfortable with the exercise and dispensation or the application of his divine sovereignty in judgment against sinners and his mercy on undeserving yet chosen peoples. The Lord was not shy to mobilize Israel's army in the wilderness and to command them to conquer and eliminate the Amorites and the Canaanites. Nor was our Lord timid and hesitant to harden the heart of King Sihon in order to bring his Amorite armies out onto the battlefield for the purpose of giving those armies into Israel's hands so that Israel at that time could occupy Sihon's lands. But even so... As I consulted a number of commentators and commentaries, their embarrassment with this text is palpable. You can feel it on the pages of the commentaries. And a lot of times they spend lots of ink trying to clear the name of God for what the evil, wicked world and the atheists in it call the moral atrocities of God. That's how they editorialize it. That's simply editorializing, right? They editorialize the just, righteous judgment of God against sinners as moral atrocity. Don't let the way things are editorialized cause you to see them wrongly. 
One of the more common methods used to explain a text like this away in these commentaries was the notion that Moses here is actually using what's called hyperbole. He's exaggerating and overstating what happened to, to, to give you a, a, a point, to shed light on a deeper spiritual reality. And that reality is this, God was with Israel. So what they're saying is, when you read Deuteronomy 2, God never actually commanded the Israelites to do what you read in Deuteronomy 2, nor did they actually go into those lands and do what the text tells us. They didn't really go capture cities and devote the peoples in those cities to destruction because, they ask, what would that say about God if he actually commanded the people to do that? Yes, that's a good question. What would it say? What does it tell us about the Lord that he, without apology, gave King Sihon in our text this morning and King Og in, in chapter 3 and the Amorite peoples into the hands of the Israelites for their destruction? What does that tell us about God? We're going to explore that as we continue on this morning. But before we do, again, you and I must know that we who adore the Lord... We who love and seek to know him more, seek to obey him more, we must always remember this one foundational, fundamental, unchanging, all-important truth. God is perfect. He is perfect in everything he does. Not only is he perfect in everything he does and in everything he commands, he is also good and wise and holy in everything he does and everything he commands. He is a holy, just sovereign. And even if yours and my finite minds cannot fully comprehend or, all, or grasp all that he's doing in Deuteronomy 2 or in our world today, God remains perfectly good, perfectly wise, perfectly holy, perfectly just. So if you are confronted, let's say you are confronted with these questions. If you are confronted by someone who hates God about, how could God do this or that? One of my favorite quotes in history comes from my favorite preacher of all time, the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon. And he said this, it rolls around in my mind and it, it, it's such a wonderful thing for me to remember. He said this, and I quote, the word of God is like a lion. You don't have to defend a lion. All you have to do is let the lion loose, and the lion will defend itself, end quote. I love that. The freedom and the liberty that I felt personally when I realized I don't have to defend God. I simply have to declare his truth. Let it out. He'll defend himself. Say what the text says, believe what the text says, speak what the text says, God will do the rest. I know I've mentioned this before, but I recall a few years ago having a conversation about this very subject with a rather aggressive atheist acquaintance of mine. And he said to me as we were sitting, he was in my home and we were sitting at the table and he told me, he tried this tactic on me and said, you know, I could never serve a God who commanded the sort of things that he commanded in the Old Testament. I mean, how could a God that you say is all about love send all the Israelites to kill all those people? And I remember responding, 
I can serve him, and boy, oh boy, do I love him. That kind of ended the conversation. Because much of the argumentative power that will come to, against us by these people is found in putting the Christian on the back foot and causing you embarrassment and squirming. But when you simply let the lion loose, and you simply just stand on the foundation of God's word, this is what happened. This is what God did. And if you don't heed it, it's going to happen to you too, but in a far worse way. And that either that person, there's always been the same responses to people who do that, whether it's in the book of Acts or from there to here. They will either continue in their rage, they will go home and they'll think about it and perhaps engage you in questioning later. They'll completely forget about it and go on with their lives. Or they'll clearly, or they'll turn to Jesus. Let the lion out. Don't be afraid. Don't be ashamed. Don't be embarrassed to simply stand on the truth of God and say what the text says. And so with that in mind, here is Moses speaking to the armies of Israel who are ready and poised now to go up into Canaan and take possession of the land. And he is reminding them of just how close the Lord has been to them during their wilderness wanderings. He's reminding them of the numerous times God has proven to be faithful to them in that he gave them victory over these two Amorite kings, Sihon in chapter 2 and Og in chapter 3. Both of these kings lived in cities that had very high walls. And if you remember what the previous generations of Israelites were afraid of, what was it? Giants in the land, very high and well-fortified walls. And here the Lord is, Moses is revealing to them, you remember how the Lord brought us the victory over these two kingdoms that had giants in them, Og's kingdom did, and very high walls. The very things you were afraid of, God went before you and he fought for you and he defeated them because God is faithful to you because he has called you to be his people. And so here is Moses encouraging the armies of Israel on that day, telling them what the Lord had said to him in verse 24. Rise, set out on your journey and go over the valley of the Arnon. Behold, he's saying, you remember this, right? You remember this day when, God, when I told you this. Behold, I have given into your hands Sihon the Amorite, king of Hezbon and his land. Begin to take possession and contend with him in battle. In other words, okay, Israel, get up and go. It's time to travel to the lands of King Sihon. It's time to travel to the land of the Amorites because glory of glories and wonder of wonders, I am going to give them into your hand. Look, I have already transferred, already surrendered their lands to you, my people. It's time for you to be the instrument of my judgment against the Amorites. Go. Now, if you recall, way back in Genesis, the Lord had promised these lands to Abraham and Abraham's descendants. And the Lord made it clear to Abraham you, Abraham, are not going to inherit the land. Your descendants are going to inherit the land. Why? The Lord said to Abraham in Genesis 15, 15, Abraham, you shall go to your fathers in peace, meaning you're going to die in peace, 
and you shall be buried in a good old age. But as for his descendants, this is what the Lord told him, told Abraham. Your descendants, they shall come back here in the fourth generation, and here's the reason why they couldn't take the land at that moment. It says, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Meaning, Abraham, you cannot have the land now because the long-suffering and merciful patience of the Lord will not let you conquer the land before the sins of the people living in the lands reach their full measure and necessitate the just judgment of the Lord. The same principle is true in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul tells those who refuse to turn to Jesus Christ in faith in Romans chapter 2, verse 5. He says, Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up for yourself wrath on the day of judgment when God's righteous judgment is revealed. God is patient. He is patient with sinners, long-suffering with sinners. He gives sinners chance after chance after chance. Call after call after call. Some of the people in your lives, you have declared Jesus to them 10, 12, 13, 15, 20 times, and you've been doing it for year after year after year, and that is a grace given to that person by God because he is long-suffering and he is patient. But there is coming a day when unrepentant sinners, their iniquity will reach this fullness, this top of the brim, and the Lord's righteous judgment will be revealed against them. This is exactly why Jesus came. Jesus came so that all who turned to him would have that stored up wrath put on Christ himself who bears it in our place, provided we believe. So that instead of being the recipient of God's wrath, you can be the recipient of his grace and mercy and forgiveness and eternal life. All praise to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the long-suffering and merciful patience of the Lord had now come to its conclusion in reference to the Amorites in Hezbon and Bashan, as we'll see next week. The Lord told Israel in that moment, it's time. The sins of the Amorites are filled to the brim. And so you, Israel, you are to go and you are to contend with them. The transfer of Amorite lands into your possession is going to come, Israel, by war and by conquest. War and conquest that I, the Lord, will use as my judgment against the Amorites and their kings for their wickedness, for their sinfulness, for their idolatry. And so the Lord commanded Israel in verse 24, you see it, right? Contend with him, that's King Sihon, contend with him in battle. That word contend means go up and stir him up to battle. Provoke him, the LSB will say. And it's the complete opposite, if you remember, of the command that the Lord had given the Israelites in reference to Moab, Ammon, and Edom. You remember in chapter 2, verses 5, 9, and 19, it's do not harass, do not contend with them. Here, the command is the opposite. Go and contend with them. Actively engage in stirring them up. Excite them out onto the battlefield. Now, just as a step back, as an aside, you might be wondering, well, what does that mean for believers today? Like, are we ever called to go out and agitate for conventional warfare in our world today? 
Are we called in any way, shape, or form to enter into some land and do what Israel did here in these days? And I'm just going to give you a flat out no. Nations may go to war. Nations may conscript you. They may call you up to battle, and that's up to you to decide what you do there. But in our day, you as an individual are not called to agitate for conventional warfare. We in the New Covenant are indeed engaged in warfare, but it's not against flesh and blood. We are not called in the same manner to engage in these holy wars or wars of, being, of devoting things to destruction that Israel was under the Old Covenant. But we are called to be spiritual warriors who contend in this world for the truth, who expose evil, who wage war against our own sin, and as citizens and troops in the kingdom of God, we are commanded by the Apostle Paul to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. We are called by Paul to put on the whole armor of God in order to stand against the schemes of the devil, to withstand evil, to stand firm with the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness and the shoes of the gospel of peace and the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And we don this spiritual armor as we go out into the world and obey the Lord's commission to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And that is our warfare. That is our duty as soldiers for the kingdom of God. That is our duty to the Lord in this world, to make disciples engaging in the warfare of proclaiming the good news of salvation by grace through faith in Christ, forgiveness in Jesus, and eternal life in Jesus to the world. The New Testament will frequently employ such metaphors of competition and battle Pictures for the saints in this, the church age. For example, Paul will tell Timothy, share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And elsewhere, Paul will equate the Christian life to boxing. That was terrible. As you can see, I'm not a boxer. <laughs> to wrestling, to athletic competitions. So should we be engaged in warfare? Yes. Not conventional physical warfare as us going out and agitating it, but in a spiritual sense, yes, we go out, expose the fruitless deeds of darkness and call sinners from that darkness into the marvelous light of Jesus Christ. But we are not in the manner that we read in Deuteronomy 2 called to agitate for physical conventional warfare against the peoples of the world and go up into lands and slaughter every man, woman, and child. That is not what we are called to do. Am I clear on that? That is not what we are called to do. By the Lord's sovereignty, that is left to him as he moves nations as at his goodwill and disposal. The Lord does and will in His sovereignty work those things out according to His own good and perfect will. You and I, we fight the good fight by living as exiles and sojourners on the earth, calling the peoples to repentance and faith. But for Israel in the wilderness, these thousands of years ago, the people of promise for whom the Lord would in that moment fulfill or bring, begin the process of fulfilling the land promises that he had given to Abraham, to Isaac and Jacob, the Lord in this moment for this people at this time under this covenant did indeed call upon them to provoke Sihon and to contend with him in battle. 
And in order to ensure that Israel's provocation would be successful, the Lord told the Israelites in verse 25, look at it, this day I will begin to put the dread and fear of you on the peoples who are under the whole heaven, who shall hear the report of you and shall tremble and be in anguish because of you. So you see, the Lord here speaks in the active voice. This is what I will do, Israel. I will first put dread of you on the peoples of the earth. Dread here means a sense of fear and a sense of panic at your approach. And not only that, but I will also put in the people's fear of you, meaning that emotion which brings about either our fight or our flight response. They will hear the report of you, That you are the people of the Lord. The Lord who struck Egypt with plagues and delivered you through the Red Sea and and then closed that sea over the entire Egyptian army, the most powerful military on the planet at that time. The Lord decimated it and destroyed it and you, Israel, never had to lift up a single sword in defense because I fought for you. The nations are going to hear that. They're going to panic. They will be in fear and dread at your approach because they know the Lord is with you. It will cause trembling and it will cause anguish in the peoples as you approach their borders. And so, interesting how Moses responds to this reality. Interesting how Moses responds to this word of the Lord that had been given to him that the Lord is putting panic and dread and giving them into the hands of the Israelites. What does Moses do? Moses sends an offer of peace. In verses 26 to 29, Moses sends an offer of peace, fully aware that the Lord was working in the heart of Sihon to ensure his rejection of that offer. To ensure that Sihon will gather the army to battle in order to be destroyed on the battlefield. See in verse 26. Moses sent messengers from the wilderness of Kittimoth to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, with words of peace, saying, Let me pass through your land. I will only go by the road. I will turn aside neither to the right nor to the left. You shall sell me food for money that I may eat and give me water for money that I may drink. Only let me pass through on foot as the sons of Esau who live in Seir and the Moabites who live in Ar did for me until I go over the Jordan into the land that the Lord our God is giving us. Now, Scripture will present this peaceful request and the response of King Sihon from two separate vantage points. In Numbers 21, we read of these events from the external perspective of a historian observing and writing down simply what occurred. So in Numbers 21, verses 21 to 25, we read this about this event. Israel sent messengers to Sihon, the king of the Amorites, saying, Let me pass through your land. We will not turn aside into the field or the vineyard. We will not drink the water of a well. We will go by the king's highway until we pass through your territory. But Sihon would not allow Israel to pass through his territory. He gathered all his peoples together, went out against Israel to the wilderness, and came to Jahaz and fought against Israel. And Israel defeated him with the edge of the sword and took possession of his land from the Arnon to the Jabbok as far as to the Ammonites, for the border of the Ammonites was strong, And Israel took all these cities, and Israel settled in all the cities of the Amorites, in Heshbon, and in all its villages. So Moses sent words of peace, according to Numbers, 
meaning words that were free from any sense of dispute or provocation. The word there for peace is shalom. Moses sent an offer of shalom, an offer of peace, but King Sahan was going to have none of it. Even though Moses promised him that the people of Israel would only travel through on the king's highway and they wouldn't veer from that highway in the slightest, even though Moses promised we will pay for our food, we'll pay fair market value for our food, we'll pay fair market value for our water from the the vendors who are lined up along the king's highway, it'll probably actually be quite an economic boost for the region. Let us pass through. And Sahan said, no. If not... Moses asked Sihon for the same consideration that he had received from the Edomites and the Moabites. That like those nations, they'd at least be permitted to travel around their borders without any sort of military threat or military campaign launched against them as they went over Jordan to Canaan, to the land that the Lord was giving to the Israelites. But again, Sihon said no. Numbers tells us that Sihon would not allow Israel to travel through his territory, while Deuteronomy tells us that Sihon would also refuse to let them pass by him, instead hoping to either defeat Israel in battle or to make them flee back in the direction of the Red Sea. Sihon gathered his armies together and marched on Israel, showing Israel zero courtesy. And so Numbers simply sets out these facts. This is what happened. But Deuteronomy presents the underlying spiritual reasons for why these things happened. Why King Sahan refused to allow Israel to travel through or around his territory. And the reasons behind his calling up the army to go in battle against Israel at Heshbon. Look at verse 30. But Sihon, the king of Heshbon, would not let us pass by him. For, that word means because, for the Lord your God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate that or so that he might give him into your hand as he is this day. Now, once again, as I consulted the commentators and commentaries about this text, numerous backflips and numerous argumentative gymnastics were used to make this text not say what it quite clearly does say. Look at the flow of the text with me. Why would Sihon refuse passage to Israel through or around his land? It is because the Lord hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate. Are you tracking through that? Are you tracking that through verse 30 there? And why did God do this to Sihon? You'll see that little word, that, or so that, or for this purpose, that the Lord might give him, might give Sihon into Israel's hand. The flow is actually quite clear. But still, so many refuse to let the text say what it says. So many refused to ascribe to the Lord the degree of sovereignty and wonder that the Lord ascribes to himself in this text. Many actually insist on crowbarring a foreign idea into this text. The common idea crowbarred in is that Sihon hardened his own heart first, and then the Lord hardened his heart in response. Do you see that in this text? 
Is that anywhere in this text? It's not found here. The same mistake is made in other hardenings in Scripture as well. The same mistake is made with reference to Pharaoh and the Lord's hardening of Pharaoh's heart in the Exodus account of chapters 1 all the way to 15. Let's go back to Exodus for a minute. Because this is important to know that this is consistent. The Lord is sovereign over our hearts. The Lord reveals quite early the definitive cause of Pharaoh's hardened heart. And that cause is revealed to be the Lord's divine activity in Pharaoh's heart. So in Exodus chapter 4, verses 21 to 23, this takes place before anyone approaches Pharaoh, anyone confronts Pharaoh about anything. Before Moses has any conversation with Pharaoh, the Lord takes credit for what is about to happen. Listen to it. The Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, (coughs) let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Again, did you hear the flow? Moses, when you get back to Egypt, perform these miracles that I've given you the power to perform. The snake, the staff into a snake, the leprosy in hand, the water in the cup turned into uh, blood. These miracles will convince the Israelite elders that you are indeed my spokesman to and for them. But these same miracles will have no effect on Pharaoh. Why? Because I will harden his heart so that he will not let my people go. And in that hardened state, Moses, command him to let Israel go or I will kill his firstborn son. That's the flow. This revelation might unsettle many of us in our day because we are so idolatrously committed to our own autonomy But I want you to notice, did this unsettle Moses in in any way? Moses simply heard it and said, okay. Moses heard and obeyed. And also notice what's not there. That idea that we try to crowbar in, right? There is not any mention of Pharaoh's autonomy or any previous condition of Pharaoh's rejection. The Lord here clearly states that he, the Lord, is the initiator of the hardening of Pharaoh's heart before Moses ever makes his way to Pharaoh to command the release of Israel. And he doesn't just do it once in the narrative of Exodus. He does it twice. Look at Exodus chapter 7. The second time prior to Moses ever having any conversation with Pharaoh, the Lord says in verse, chapter 7 verse 2, You shall speak all that I command you. And your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then, or as a result, I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. 
They did just as the Lord commanded. So you see the divine agendas quite clearly set out. Moses and Aaron, you go and you command Pharaoh to let my people Israel go. But know this, as you do or before you get there, I will harden his heart to ensure that he doesn't. For this reason, to multiply my power and my signs and my wonders in the land. Pharaoh won't listen to you in this hardened state. And because of that, I will lay my hand on Egypt and I will judge them as I show my power in the salvation and deliverance of my people Israel. Israel, you are going to see just how powerful I am and just how mighty I am to save you. And this will result in Egypt knowing that I am the Lord, that Yahweh is God, that it's not Ra or Osiris or Horus or any other of their false idols that are God. It is Yahweh who is the Lord over all. So you see, twice before encountering Pharaoh, the Lord makes his role in hardening Pharaoh's heart clear, actively declaring that he is going to do so. And he also gives us the reasons so the nations will know that he is the Lord. The Egyptians, and, the, and this is the point. Like take a step back, some historical context here. The Egyptians, along with many of the nations who surrounded Egypt, believed that the heart of Pharaoh controlled history and reality. Pharaoh, in the eyes of many of the nations around, was the incarnation, was assumed to be the incarnation of the most powerful Egyptian gods, Ra and Horus and Osiris. And the Lord would make it abundantly clear to Israel and to Egypt that Pharaoh is nothing. Pharaoh is a no-god because what kind of God, what kind of so-called God could not even control the motions and decisions of his own heart, let alone history and reality as a whole? This is the point, but we miss it because we get so focused on how could he do that to Pharaoh's heart? It is a central component of the Lord's revelation of his sovereign divine deity. Again, the point of this Narrative is that Egypt's supposed God, his heart was overruled by the God of Israel. And in many ways, today, when we read that story, this active hardening of God's heart, when he reveals that he is God of gods, King of kings, Lord of lords, over all, is subjected to our offense with the idea that he might encroach upon the condition of someone's heart. The living God does rule over everything, sovereignly. Now, some will still say, but Pharaoh hardened his own heart numerous times before the Lord hardened it, so that the Lord simply gave Pharaoh up to his own stubborn condition, which is false. While there are indeed times when Pharaoh did harden his own heart during the process, the majority of instances and the earliest instances are accompanied by this phrase, as the Lord had said. So look, for example, at, the first, couple, at a couple, the first couple of instances in Exodus chapter 7, verse 13. Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, meaning Moses and Aaron, as the Lord had said. So you see that little phrase there? You'll see that that's kind of accompanied with it numerous times throughout. And then in 7, verse 22, so Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. 
That phrase, as the Lord had said, harkens back Harkens the reader back to the time when the Lord had said what is going to happen. And when did the Lord say what was going to happen? Exodus 4, Exodus 7. I will harden his heart. Meaning, his heart was hardened in accordance with the word that God had spoken about hardening his heart. And the Lord here takes the... uh, The Lord is the prime and active agent. The Lord is the subject performing the action of hardening, while Pharaoh's heart is the object upon which the action is performed. And to what end? For what reason? For what purpose? Exodus 9.16. For this purpose I have raised you up, Pharaoh, to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. And that's the point. God reveals his power so that his people proclaim his name throughout the earth. And in chapter 10 of Exodus, verses 1 and 2, the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, so that, or that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. You see that? The fame of the name of the Lord the knowledge of the peoples that Yahweh is the Lord, the fact that God is the Lord is the point. All of these works of the Lord have a goal and a purpose to show the nations that Yahweh is Lord. There is no other, that His name should be proclaimed in all of the earth. And as it is with the many of the works and commands of the Lord, humanity has carved for itself idols that are offended by this idea that God is absolutely sovereign, that God's name would be supreme, that his will determines reality and not ours, that he is the centerpiece. The idol of autonomy and the, the centrality of self and the centrality of our own will, there's a reason human societies have been so concerned with these things. And if you actually take a step back and look at all of the different things that culture pushes, you will always seem to notice that they are the very opposite of what God commands. Look what they're doing. Look what our cultures do to marriage. Look what our cultures do in government. Look what our cultures do to gender roles and sex roles. Look at all of these things. You ever notice that it's whatever God tells us we should be doing to obey Him for the flourishing of a society, that is what the culture takes and tries to flip on its head? The same is true here when it comes to the will and autonomy. The more we fixate on them, the more we become quiet. The more we use them as something to put God in the defendant's chair rather than going out into the world and proclaiming his glory. Truly, the proverb of Solomon is wonderfully correct, right? Proverbs 21.1, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he will. The Apostle Paul would refer to the Lord's work in Pharaoh's heart in Romans chapter 9 to make this important point. Romans 9.18, The Lord has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Why? Because he is supreme. He is absolute. He is the point. And for those who might take issue with this divine prerogative of God, whether it's in the heart of Sahan, the heart of Pharaoh, or the heart of the Canaanites, Paul anticipates this objection that will be raised, saying in Romans 9.19, You will say to me then, well, how can God still find fault for who can resist his will? Meaning, how can God hold people guilty of sin when he's the agent responsible for dispensing either mercy or hardening like he did with Pharaoh or Sahan, or like we said, another example 
the Canaanites, as we read in Joshua 11. Joshua 11, verses 19 and 20 say this, There was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. They took them all in battle, for it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed just as the Lord commanded Moses. The question is, how can the Lord harden hearts and then judge people without mercy? How is that fair? Paul anticipates this question. For anyone who might ask this question, let me just say, you probably will not appreciate Paul's answer. I personally love it because it puts me in my place. It puts us in our place. Here's the answer in Romans chapter 9, 20 and 22. Who are you, O man? to answer back to God. Will what is molded say to its molder, why do you make me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? And the implied answer to that question is, of course he does. But it's Paul's opening line that puts me and should put all of us in our place. Who are you, O man? In other words, who do you think you are? Like, really, how highly do you think of yourself that you would question the Lord, think you know better how to govern the earth than Him, put yourself in His seat and think that you know more about how to govern creation than Him, the good, wise, and perfect God? Who do you and I think we are to say in any way, shape, or form that If I was doing it, I would do it differently. That is us saying, because I know more than you. That's idolatry. Seriously. Who do you think you are? That's the tone Paul is putting forward here. Who do you think you are? That you would accuse God or deny his sovereignty rather than simply praise him for his excellencies, his actions, and his perfections. Every time I read that, it's a good reminder to me, I hope it is to you as well, that God has every right to do as he wills with his own creation, even if it means hardening hearts in order to destroy those who deserve it without mercy. And so you see, as the Lord worked in Sihon's heart, he did two things in verse 30 of chapter 2 Deuteronomy. First thing, he hardened his spirit meaning he made Sihon's will stubborn so that his intentions were set against Israel's passage through or around his territory. And also, the second thing, the Lord made his heart obstinate. You see those two things in verse 30, right? The heart here refers to the center of a person's will, thoughts, volition, emotion, and conscience. The Lord made Sihon obstinate and defiant. The Lord actively brought this state about in Sihon and then hardened him in it. Why? To punish the Amorites for their sin and to give them into the hands of Israel's armies on that day. And it is for this reason that Sihon engaged Israel in battle. As we read in verse 31 and 32, And the Lord said to me, that's Moses, Behold, I have begun, I have begun to give Sihon and his land over to you. Begin to take possession that you may occupy this land. Then Sihon came out against us, he and all his people, to battle at Jahaz. The word here for 
behold, means look and know, understand this, Israel. I've given Sihon and his land over to you. Now you, go up, take possession. So do you see the steps so far? First step, contend with Sihon and provoke him to battle. Second step, the Lord will harden his heart to ensure that he comes out against you in battle. Third step, when he comes out against you in battle, go to war, defeat him, and take possession of the lands that were once his that now I'm giving to you. And as the battle lines are drawn, as Sihon brings his army out to engage Israel, Moses continued the encouragement to Israel from history, saying in verses 34 and 35, The Lord our God gave him over to us, and we defeated him and his sons and all his people, and we captured all his cities at that time and devoted to destruction every city, men, women, and children. Israel seized and razed every city under Sihon's rule, and along with that, put to death every man, woman, and child in those lands. The Israelites, see the phrase used in verse 34? Devoted them to destruction. You see that phrase? A phrase that means they were put under the ban, they were put under the curse, they were placed under the divine judgment of God. Something the Lord will command Israel to do in these days and also in the days when he took possession, when they take possession of Canaan. In Deuteronomy 7, for example, we read this in verses uh, 1 and 2. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away the many nations before you, the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you, and when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. Meaning the peoples in these lands have been designated by God for his holy wrath because of their abominable, repeating, repeated, and unceasing sinfulness. The sins of the peoples populating Canaan have reached their full measure and the Lord will use the armies of Israel to be the rod of his anger against them. Israel at that time would be the instrument by which God's holy justice fell upon those people. And again, the Lord has not been shy to reveal his holy justice and righteousness up until that point. He'd already, by this time, rained fire on Sodom and Gomorrah and destroyed the cities of the valley for their wicked sins and their sexual deviance. The Lord had already sent his destroying angel in the tenth plague of Egypt to destroy all the firstborn throughout the nation. The Lord had already, in Genesis chapter 6, sent a global flood to blot out every living creature except for Moses and family from the face of the ground because their wickedness was evil all over the earth and every intention of their heart, of their thoughts, was only evil all the time. And the Lord had already declared that an entire generation of faithful Israelites would die in the wilderness. And now the Lord pours out his judgment on the kingdom of Sihon. It is once again his righteous judgment displayed as a warning to you and I, the sinner. This is a compelling reason. It is set down for us as a compelling reason for us, his people today, to go out into the world to proclaim the good news of salvation by grace through faith in Christ and the comfort and the joy that God offers to humanity through him. Because God will not let sin go unpunished. What you see in Deuteronomy and in Joshua are a warning to the sinner to reveal, to understand the gravity and seriousness of sin, the gravity and seriousness of dying apart from salvation in Christ. 
And to all who are deluding themselves in this moment with thoughts of their own goodness in the sight of God, you are in grave danger because these displays of God's justice falling upon sinners temporally in the world is a mere foreshadowing. It is but the slightest picture of the wrath that awaits the sinner who dies as one who rejected the offer of salvation in Christ. There will be a day when, because your name is not found in the book of life, because you did not repent of your sin, because you did not confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that you will, as Revelation 20 verse 15 says, be thrown into the lake of fire for eternal torment. It's for this reason that, on the, on the one hand, that believers and sons and daughters of the Most High God commit themselves to the proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ. It's why we're so eager to do it. It's why we're out there doing it. It's why ministries are created. It's why the church is here to get out there and to tell people you can be saved by grace through faith in Jesus. If you're not, I can't begin to describe what awaits you on the other side. Just take a look at Deuteronomy. Take a look at the wrath of God that falls upon sinners and just know that that is nothing compared to what waits for you. My favorite preacher, my second favorite preacher, I can't have so many favorite preachers, the great J.C. Ryle. I was just reading this uh, yesterday and I thought this is appropriate. And I quote, he said this, Believers, settle it firmly in your mind that the same Bible which teaches that God in mercy and compassion sent Christ to die for sinners does also teach you that God hates sin and must from his very nature punish all who cleave to sin and refuse the salvation he has provided. The very same chapter which declares God so loved the world declared also that the wrath of God abides on the unbeliever. The very same gospel which is launched into the earth with blessed tidings, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, proclaims in the same breath that he that does not believe shall be damned. Settle it firmly in your mind that God has given us proof upon proof in the Bible that he will punish the hardened and unbelieving and that he can take vengeance on his enemies as well as show mercy on the repentant. The drowning of the old world by the flood, the burning of Sodom and Gomorrah, the overthrow of Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea, the judgments on Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, the utter destruction of the seven nations of Canaan, all teach the same awful truth. They are all given to us as beacons and signs and warnings that we might not provoke God. They are all meant to lift up the corner of the curtain which hangs over the things to come and to remind us that there is such a thing as the wrath of God. They all tell us plainly that the wicked shall be turned to hell. And so as difficult as it might be in closing for us to accept, God is perfectly wise and good in the dispensation and exercise of both his gracious, merciful love towards those whose names are found written in the book of life because they turn to Jesus Christ by grace through faith. And at the same time, he is perfectly wise and good in his dispensation and exercise of his righteous, just, and holy wrath without mercy toward those who refuse his offer of salvation by grace through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. So the two options are held before you. Deuteronomy 11 will say it quite clearly. See, I set before you today life and death, blessing and curse. If you love Jesus Christ, rejoice, adore your God, cling to him. If you've rejected God, 
If your faith is a pseudo-faith that likes certain parts of him and despises others, then you haven't fully come to love God as he is. If you're rejecting God, then may fear and panic and anguish grip and seize your soul from this day to the day you die. And may that fear and panic and trembling bring you to your knees in humble faith before it is too late for you and you are thrown into the eternal torment that is the lake of fire. Repent and turn to Jesus and be saved. Father, thank you for the warnings that you give us in your word. And as difficult as they are for us to appreciate in our day, I pray that these warnings would be heard and that you would be working in the souls of those who don't know you to bring, you, bring them to the saving knowledge of Jesus, and that you would be working in the souls of all of us who do love Jesus and are saved by grace through faith in his name, causing us to rejoice that we are the objects of your glorious mercy. Father, may you be glorified no matter what any of us choose. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.